Hello, everyone. This is Michael Vandervoort. It's uh, August 24th, uh, a Thursday, and uh, I usually open these shows by talking about some dumb topic like the weather, but today's a special day. It's Orange Thursday here at Labor Relatedly, and my host, uh, co-host John Hyman is wondering, what the hell is Orange Thursday? I'll get into that in a second. How you doing, John? Uh, I'm hanging in there. We've had, um, in the last... <laughs> In the last week, we had our house flood from a burst pipe. We had our dog almost die from a chocolate overdose. Um, uh, my kids went back to school, and then we brought a foreign exchange student into our house. <laughs> so it's been it's been a little hectic well, in my world. But that said, it's really good to see you and talk to you because it just brings a little bit of a little bit of normalcy and calm into my life. Uh, yeah, well, we're, I, don't I, how, mean, you know. I don't know how calm the show will be or how calm our <laughs> listeners will be after we're done talking about our topics today. But it, yeah, it's so A, I'm, I'm super happy your dog is good. I saw that on, on you know, the Twitters or whatever. And yeah, it's always alarming. But I, I, it, fortunately, I, when I saw it, I already knew the kind of the aftermath. So that was, you know, glad to hear that. The house, that sucks. I've lived through that. It's a mess and I, I don't envy you the the mess and your poor foreign exchange student who had no idea they were coming to live in like you know third world country kind of surroundings no bathrooms and all that sort of stuff so she, she she's so sweet and so lovely and I, I think i must have offered her the opportunity to go home to germany at least a dozen times in the last week and she's turned me down every time so so one good thing is she'll always remember this experience there is there is no doubt we tried so hard to maintain good behavior and decorum. We talked about it as a family before she arrived that we were going to give her, uh, you know, a solid two or three weeks of us being on our best behavior before we let our kind of true colors come through. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that lasted all of, uh, let's see, Saturdays at four days um, as there's water pouring through our ceiling and we're rushing to get dishes out of cabinets and we're, you know, dropping F-bombs at each other and yelling. And we're like, well, it is uh, my my daughter was like, it is it is officially a baptism uh, into yeah. our family as we all got wet with the water pouring out of the ceiling. mom and dad. <laughs> yes, here we are in all, in, in all of in all of our F-bomb dropping glory. So. Yeah. So well, that that uh, I, I, I as I said, I've lived through it and I, I vividly remember flinging the F-bombs when I saw water running through the ceiling of my bathroom after arriving home from a fantastic weekend in Chicago. So. <laughs> It's like, whoa, 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday. Anyway, um, so let's get to the let's get to the labor relatedly stuff. So I said today's uh, the theme is orange. So so first of all, happy pumpkin spice, pumpkin spice day. It's back. It's it's back. in. I mean, it, every year it comes a little earlier. So today is the uh, release of pumpkin spice themed drinks at Starbucks. And the barista that brought me my non pumpkin spice flavored coffee this morning was dressed as a pumpkin. So that was where I got this idea from. I was like, nice, you know, co nice costume. Uh, so that's one aspect of orange uh, Starbucks. We'll give a Starbucks update in a second. Second aspect of orange is there's going to be a lot of orange traffic cones and a, and a higher level of traffic congestion than usual in Fulton County, Georgia today. I'll just leave the orange aspects uh, at that because we don't want to go too political, but it's it's a big day down there and lots of lots of news sure to come from that. So we'll Yay. keep it. We'll be Yay keeping an eye on it. <laughs> Yay, funny, right? Um, 
So that's all I'll say there. And then uh, lastly, uh, orange, uh, kind of an orange alert around the NLRB, uh, because there's a lot of stuff that, and we're going to talk about what's coming in a second, but there's a lot of stuff going on over there. And that's the bulk of what our show is about today. So um, I'm going to give four news updates because we it's been a month since we did a show and quite a bit's happened. And we there's probably like three episodes in what I'm about to mention that we'll never get to. But uh, so Yesterday was the two-year anniversary of the start of the Starbucks Workers Union campaign to organize Starbucks. We talk about this in every show, whether we intend to or not. So I just want to get this obligatory update out of the way. I don't think we can. I don't think we. I don't think we can do a show called Labor Relatedly in 2023 without mentioning Starbucks. They're gonna. They're gonna pull our. They're gonna pull our 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 labor law card if we do. So yeah. So we're. We're good. Our union card is, is, oh, we don't have a union. Our, our card is, uh, <laughs> our, our host card is, is still legit. Cause we're going to do that today. Two years since they started the campaign, over 400, over 400 petitions, over 300 elections, union wins for Starbucks workers unions, uh, and zero contracts. And how many desert, how many desert petitions so far? Verging on 20. I didn't get, yeah. I didn't pull the, uh, I didn't pull the official count. I mean, they're still filing petitions. They're still winning elections. And and but there is buyer's remorse. Some of the some of the the union some of the union. Um, what am I trying to say? The unionized locations ha have you know said this isn't working for us. We want to get rid of this union thing. The most recent one that I saw was in uh, in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, I actually visited that store on the day that they unionized, and they were jubilant that day. And now they're trying to get rid of the union. So it's but even know, it's, in Buffalo, it, but even in Buffalo, one of the very first stores to yeah, yeah. organize filed a petition. Uh, to desert, and so I think I said this on a previous episode. So if I'm repeating myself, um, I apologize, or maybe not because it's still true. But I, I, the the organizing part's the easy part. The 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 negotiating that first contract is really, really, really hard. Yeah. Um. And when Starbucks, where you have, you know, not professional union people running these campaigns and sitting down at the bargaining table, uh, even though they're getting uh, they're getting advice in the background, but this is still very much a DIY campaign. Um, there's just not a lot of collective. They're, they're not bringing a lot of collective bargaining expertise to the table, which is really hurting them. And it's making their job an already difficult job that much more difficult. So yeah. we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, we follow this stuff at LRI and we're seeing the same sort of trend at Trader Joe's and Apple REI, you know, there's frust, you know, there's jubilance over the wins and then frustration over the process and some, you know, not so much deserts uh, per se, but just frustration over the slow unwinding of the negotiations process. And, and, and for listeners, hold that in mind, because we'll come back to that at the end when we talk about, um, when we talk about some of the NLRB changes that are upcoming. So Starbucks, yeah, we, we're both on record as saying they'll never get a contract. So far, we're still right. So we'll yeah, we, we are batting a thousand on our, on our prediction that at the end of all of this, there will be zero contracts in yep. Starbucks. Um, Hollywood, still on strike, still shut down. Uh, our viewing options are going to start to narrow. They're starting to delay movies. They are meeting and negotiating again, but it's well over 100 days and, and no end in sight. So, um, season yeah. five, season five of Love Is Blind premieres on Netflix uh, September twenty second. So set your, I guess you can't set your DVR for Netflix, but the reality shows are going to be coming hard and fast as we're going to be quickly starved for other entertainment options. So, I recently caught up on season five, part A of Yellowstone, and I see on the internet that part B or the second half of the season five 
is due out in November, but I'm skeptical because I don't even know if they're in production right now. So we'll see. We're all going to be uh, signing up for um, whatever the service is that brings us shows from the BBC because they're still they're not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fox, they're not SAG yeah. after. So, yeah. So whatever that is. So we can all watch. Yeah, we can a, all get our fill of BBC entertainment. So. I watch that anyway. So that's fine. Uh, so anyway, ho Hollywood, no end in sight. UPS. We thought there was going to be a strike at UPS, 340,000 people or some weird number like that going to go out on strike. And it surprisingly, and this is probably a, a show of its own, as I said, that'll never happen. It did that. The strike did not happen. UPS, yeah, they ratified. They ratified yesterday. Yeah. UPS ratified yesterday. So the deal is done. Uh, the Teamsters claim that it's, you know, like the, the most successful union contract ever negotiated in the history of mankind. And it has some good stuff in it, but I'm not. Uh, yeah, again, we're not going to talk, spend a lot of time on this. I'm not sure it's as good as they claim, but it's a pretty, pretty good agreement. I got to say everyone's everyone's Amazon deliveries are safe for the time being. So, yeah. And and we may come back to that because Am th that contract was actually negotiated with Amazon in mind because the Teamsters would love to organize Amazon and they want to be able to hold up that contract as a model for what Amazon employees could get. And, and they also wanted badly to, to get a, a, an agreement with UPS. So there was a couple of agenda items that one with the longer term, but we may come back to that on a, on a future show. But anyway, UPS has done no strike. Now the next big industry is the UAW, big three in Detroit or the Detroit three or whatever they call it these days. When I grew up there, it was the big four, but they've merged and you know all, all that uh, UAW. And they're, they're similarly shooting for a major uh, major gains in a contract. They're talking about a 46% wage increase that they're asking for over five years or something like that. And a lot of other changes and they want COLA restored, a bunch of things. Uh, their contract expires on September 14th. Their voting uh, just concluded, I believe, and we'll know in the next 24 hours where they'll, they'll authorize a strike. And I'm going to go way out on a limb here and say, that that answer is good. Yes, <laughs> because <laughs> that's, a re, that's a really far limb you're out. You're out on. There, yeah, so I know. I really it's really the shortest couldn't... limb in history. <laughs> it's like it's like it's a major piece of leverage. They they definitely want to have the strike authorization vote. And so that's going to happen. That'll come out in the news and they'll blur headlines. They did uh, what they call practice pickets yesterday all over the at at, at site at UA or not at automotive uh, plants all over the U.S. tactic that UPS used uh, or that the Teamsters used against UPS very successfully, where they had protests and get, you know, to build, to rally the troops and all that. So lots going on. Uh, we'll stay tuned on UAW. We'll probably have a chance to talk about that more downstream. So I'll just leave it at that. So Orange Thursday, lots going on. And I guess I'll bring you the final piece of the Orange Thursday home is that the NLRB and what we've been talking about for quite a long time, the Jennifer Abruzzo agenda of major ref law, ref major labor law reforms being accomplished through NLRB decisions is is here. Like it's the, it's, the end. The end is nigh. Yeah, we're so, you know, Taylor Swift to bring in another pop culture references on her eras tour. We're literally about to enter the Jennifer Abruzzo era, which we've been talking about and waiting for for a couple of years, almost it's as a, long as Starbucks a, has been trying to get a contract or the it's SBW. A, it's going to be a dark and scary era for employers, I think. It, it is. So uh, so one of the so so before we go, get to that. Uh, which is a case called the Semex case that's pending and likely to, to issue a decision next week sometime. Uh, let's talk about another big change that the NLRB uh, released, another another decision, which is part of a Brusso's agenda, 
it, but it, it's kind of like a retro throwback case, and that's Stericycle. John, why don't you set up and tell us what Stericycle is and what horrors it unleashes for well, so HR people? Stericycle is going to force all employers to go back and take another look at their employee at their employee handbooks. We remember um, back to the uh, Obama era NLRB when uh, the NLRB had employee handbook policies on its hit list. And uh, we were all, we all, it, it was great for me because I got to rewrite a ton of employee handbooks. And so, uh, but um, for employers, it was a nightmare because they were uh, reviewing and revising policies. It felt almost like on a daily basis as these decisions kept coming out. Um, Stericycle set yet another new, and by my count, it's at least the fifth standard in the last 25 years for when a workplace policy, whether in a handbook or not, um, uh, violates employees' rights to engage in protected concerted activity. And this one goes further than any standard has ever done before in putting a really onerous burden on employers. And without going through, I mean, I can talk for, I've already, I've done a webinar in the last week on this and I did talk for an hour on what all those five standards were and how they all differ. And it's really not necessary. Um, uh, today, the important piece is what Stericycle says, which is that a workplace rule is presumptively unlawful. Um, if a reasonable layperson, non-lawyer employee would reasonably interpret the rule to chill someone from exercising their section seven rights. So presumptively unlawful, the, the rule is presumed unlawful. If a reasonable uh, employee could look at the rule and say, eh, maybe I couldn't say or do something I otherwise thought I could say or do um, uh, in the workplace or about work. Then the NLRB allows an employer to pro to rebut that presumption of unlawfulness Um if the employer can show that the rule advances a legitimate and substantial business interest and the employer is unable to advance that interest with a more narrowly tailored rule. Um, the NLRB made its decision retroactive, meaning it applies not just to all policies written in the future, but all policies that exist as far back in time as they are. And I've <laughs> looked at some, and I've had clients give me employee handbooks that were written 20 years ago. And so if a handbook was written 20 years ago and still in use, um, this decision uh, applies to that handbook. And it's, you know, you, if your handbook is 20 years old, you should be updating it any, anyway, but this is a really uh, good reason to do so. But in terms of what that, how that reasonable employee standard kind of operates, no one really knows because the board remanded the, 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 the case back to the ALJ to pass judgment on the work rules at issue in that particular case. Um, but I mean, the real danger here is when we're looking at a kind of reason, the hypothetical reasonable employee, if for example, you have like your standard garden variety, facially neutral, like civility policy, treat all employees with civility, um, you know, don't harass, don't do, you know, don't be, you know, don't be mean to your coworkers, however you have it phrased in your handbook or otherwise, the, the NLRB is going to say under this standard that that rule is presumptively unlawful because an employee, a reason, a 
hypothetical, reasonable employee could look at that rule and, and say, oh, well, sometimes when I have a disagreement about a work rule, I might get heated and maybe I can't get heated if that would cause me to be uncivil and violate this rule. Or uh, union organizing campaigns often get heated and way more than uncivil. And so am I going to be able to effectively organize my coworkers if I have to maintain civility in the workplace? And so the NLRB is going to find, for example, like garden variety, facially neutral, civility, insubordination, non-harassment, non-bullying, whatever, non-disparagement rules to be unlawful. The question I have in my mind that has not been answered by the board and is really the question that we need an answer to to really know how far kind of how far the impact of this of this decision is going to be is can an employer put a disclaimer in a handbook or in a policy that says notwithstanding the foregoing civility policy, nothing herein infringes on an employee's right to you know, engage in protected concerted activity protected by Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act or otherwise discuss, you know, terms and conditions of employment or however you phrase it. Yeah, and and I think that I think there's a couple illustrative things from when. So what we're seeing here, you mentioned like five different standard, you know, over 25 years or whatever policy oscillation, right, back and forth between Democratic yep. boards and Republican yeah, whiplash, boards, I know. call it. Yeah, yeah, whiplash yep. is a better term, actually. But yeah, in the Beltway, you hear, hear them talk about the the, de the damage and detrimental effects of policy oscillation because businesses crave consistency and the board's not anymore, regardless. Well, I'm going to go there um, in in I think there was a decision, maybe Walmart a few years back during the kind of the F-bomb, since we're talking eras, when it was like, you know, they had like six cases where they said, yeah, the F-bomb or racial epithets, those are fine because it occurred during, to your point, union organizing or, can't, you know, on a picket line or whatever, it's a heated moment. So it's okay to say all that stuff, which it's not. And employers, you know, go crazy over it, but that's what the board standards allowed at that time. And we're, we're headed towards a similar, if not worse kind of aspect now. And back then, I believe they said that caveat sort of like, this is not intended to, you know, create chilling effects, that disclaimer you mentioned, I think they said that wasn't sufficient, that you had to have a policy that gave examples and, and all that kind of stuff. Am I remembering that correctly? You are. So what, what, so the, the upshot is we now might have, you know, employee handbooks are long enough as is, right? Uh, because of all the things we have to have in them. And so what are we going to have now, like a 200-page employee handbook that no one's going to read anyway? It's not – you're, you're, you're creating a situation where if that's going to be the rule, we have to give specific examples of permitted conduct to employees. And we have to, as an employer, think of every possible you know, situation to carve out of a policy um, uh, to make the poli – to, to make a civility policy legal. You're gonna have a 15-page policy that no one's gonna no one's yeah, gonna read anyway. Yeah. So you're gonna have handbooks that are they're 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 already ineffective, um, and they're gonna be even more ineffective because we're just gonna we're you know nobody's gonna read when you, you're you're gonna drop you know Webster's Dictionary or the Encyclopedia Britannica in someone's lap on their first day of employment and go you know here's the handbook and it's gonna make the big thud on the desk and they're gonna sign the receipt they're not gonna read it and you're creating. Um, something that's not going to be a, it's it's not manageable or or even remotely effective. So, yeah. um, you know, bravo. Um, you know, I I always believe, and this doesn't dissuade me from my belief that the people that sit on the NLRB and write these rules have no idea um, what it means to kind of operate a business in the real world, um, and creating uh, creating a legal standard that 
would is going to force employers to roll out you know an employee handbook that's 250 pages long um just further reinforces my belief that um these people have no idea what it means to run, what, what it takes to run a business or how to how or the 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 what's necessary to effectively manage or operate a, a business on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And you know, I, it kind of leads into a question I wanted to ask you, which is their goal is their end goal here is not like administrative gridlock for employers by doing what you said, which, you know, making everybody rewrite a, a thousand page handbook. That's not what they want. Why do they care about this? What, what is the end? What's the higher level end game here? I mean, the higher level end game is by making it easier for employees to talk about um, to, to the the end game is making it easier to organize. I mean, that's ultimately what the end game here is. I mean, the even with the recent surge of unionization, um, I mean, there's still you know it's only ninety four percent of of workplaces, private sector workplaces, are not collectively bargained, and they, the NLRB's focus on protected concerted activity in non union workplaces, um. Uh, particularly around policies um, focused on uh, communication between employees on terms and conditions of employment is all geared towards making it easier for employees to organize. That's right. the end game. Right. And, and, and just by note right now, if you, if you get organized, if you get an election and the unions wins about 80% of the time, that's what the that's what the data shows for 2023. It was like 76%. Yeah, and, and, and keep that and keep that number in mind when we talk about uh the CMEX decision in a few minutes. Because, exactly. Because like do and maybe that's maybe that's the perfect segue because all this is geared towards helping labor unions organize and they don't they don't need the help. They're doing just fine on their own. Yeah, yeah. They they're they're winning elections. They're just not able to get contracts. Um, so so that's that's stericycle, I think. Uh any I, I guess we usually try to end each of these discussions with like what should what what should HR people be doing right now? And I think you said it at the outset, is you gotta review your handbook. Yeah, I guess I mean call call your lawyer and review your, and review your handbook. I mean, don't I, I would say resist the urge to play um you know, Google HR person or Google handbook and search for, because the policies you're going to find online. I always tell companies like, don't Google, don't Google your handbook because you don't know when it was written, who it was written by, what jurisdiction it was written for, et cetera. All the reasons why you shouldn't be pulling policies off the internet, or at least not doing so without having your lawyer review them. But this is really the time you need to have your, your company's employment, labor and employment council. I mean, if you don't have one, find one um, who can, redraft or review what you've redrafted for compliance with this because this really requires um and and eyes on someone that understands what all this means and you're not gonna you're not gonna get that through google or chat gpt great so yeah so this was um this has been around for a bit it comes and goes it'll it'll oscillate backwards again in another couple of years, maybe. Stay tuned, twenty twenty four. We don't know what the twenty twenty yeah, first debate last night. We don't know what twenty twenty four election yeah. cycle is going to bring, and if it Thanks. brings a Republican in the White House, this will whiplash back the other way again in a couple of years. So the uh, the end of the no no such thing as climate change, 
end of the Department of Education and the end of teachers unions. That's what I saw so far on Twitter. That was what that's the policy stuff from last night. So if you um, yeah, again, yeah, we don't want to get too political, but I, I did yeah. watch and it was yeah. it was hard. It was it was hard to watch. So. Yeah, I didn't watch uh -oh. it. I just I read the close notes, but those yeah. were the big takeaways that I saw mentioned on X this morning, not Twitter anymore, I guess. My wife Another went team. upstairs. My, my yeah. wife, she's like, I, I can't do this. And I'm like, I feel I feel I need to understand, so I feel obligated to watch. And I, I suffered for two hours, and it was, it was, it, it was hard to watch. But yeah. X was another change that happened since the last time we did a show. This has been like a landmark show we're doing here. All <laughs> the whole world has changed. So, <laughs> so the big gorilla. This hasn't happened yet, and we don't know the full extent of what the final decision will look like. And John said CMEX, and I say CEMEX. I'm not sure exactly how the company pronounces it. Either way, there's a decision that's been pending before the board for quite some time. Uh, involving a company called Semex or CMEX, um, which has been in a in a ma major major dispute, um, and the belief by most labor relations experts and labor lawyers is that the board will release this decision with prof potentially profound impacts sometime early next week uh, on the heels of Gwen Wilcox's at the end of her term and departure from the NLRB. It's traditional to have a bunch of cases come out right as a board member leaves. And we think this will be one. And this one, this one potentially, and I know this sounds hyperbolic almost, potentially has the, um, the it, this case has the potential to rewrite labor law as we know it in the United States. Is that an overstatement, John? No, I think we, those of us that speak about, you know, podcast about this stuff and write about this stuff online, we tend, we, we, we get accused of being hyperbolic sometimes for, for clicks and for attention. It, it is not hyperbole to say that this decision is whatever it says um, and we have a good it, we we have a good idea of what it's going to say based on at least in part based on what Abruzzo says she wants it to say, and so we know somewhere where we we can reasonably reasonably predict where we think it's going to go um, if it comes anywhere close to what Abruzzo asked for in the memo she put out um, last year, it is going to be paradigm shifting for labor law in the United States. Yeah, so so there there are three aspects of this, and I guess that's what we're going to try to touch on here in like fifteen minutes or something. Uh, so about five minutes per per aspect or category. There are three major things, and um, the first one is, and they're they're all they're all big on their own. So to get a decision of this, you know, potentially cumulative impact is almost unprecedented. So there there's a there's a thing called uh, Joyce Silk, the Joyce Silk Standard, the Joyce Silk Doctrine, which is an old NLRB case that goes back to 1949. That, um, and I'll let you kind of explain what that is in a minute. But if 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 Abruzzo, in her memo, she suggested that the Joyce Silk Standard should be restored, and that would essentially do away with union elections. And we'll talk about the, the specific details in just a second. So that that in and of itself is a huge change because the, the Supreme Court has has ruled on this and has said basically union elections by by secret ballot are the gold standard. So the board is basically saying we want to get rid of that altogether. And that is has been the, the primary way of, of settling uh, whether or not a, a group of employees wants to be unionized since the inception of of the uh NLRB, with the exception of 20 years where the Joy Silk Standard more or less stood in uh, as, as a different sort of, but it, it anyway, so that's one aspect. Second thing is 
the 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 potential banning of meetings where employers communicate to employees about the realities of unions and collective bargaining in a mandatory way. The board wants to make the, such meetings uh, non-mandatory only, and it would vastly impact an employer's ability to communicate with its workforce if that happens. And the third piece is something called TriCast, which is another doctrine from a, another NLRB case that says that employers governs how employers can speak to their uh, employees about the, the relationship, the direct relationship that they have and how unions could impact that. So those are the three things. And I think probably, John, we should hit on uh, Joy Silk first. So you want to kind of elaborate? Yeah. So Joy Silk um, allowed for uh, or uh, allowed for card check recognition. Um, Congress tried to do this legislatively a number of years ago through what was called the Employee Free Choice Act to require an employer to uh, uh, recognize uh, a labor union upon the presentation of a majority of signed cards. How it works now, if for those that don't know, uh, since I think since at least 1966, since Joy Silk was overturned, was that when uh, a, a union presents cards um, to an employer, signed cards by uh, uh, employees, um, the employer can choose to voluntarily recognize the union. That happens seldomly, but it does happen. Um, or the employer can uh, request a secret ballot election through the National Labor Relations Board. Under Joy Silk, um, upon the presentation of a majority of authorization cards signed by employees in the proposed bargaining unit, um, the employer um, has an, an a st would, would have an obligation to bargain with the labor union unless the employer um, uh, has a good faith doubt about the uh, union's claim majority status through the signed cards. So it would essentially, and unless an employer can establish that quote unquote good faith doubt, in which case the board um, would order would order the election. But absent evidence of that good faith doubt established and found by the board, an employer is going to have to recognize and bargain with the union based on a based on a presentation of signed authorization cards by a majority of, of employees in the bargaining unit. So it would essentially, um, more than essentially, do away with not just secret ballot elections, but the the campaigning that goes on um, in between uh, the presentation of the cards and the and the secret ballot election so it, it would and as we said before it's not like unions need an advantage here because they're winning close to four out of every five union elections anyway um but this would um severely tilt the table in their favor more than it more than it already is and i think there's an aspect of this that says that if you um if you don't recognize, I mean, so, so yes. So if they, if they present the cards and you say, well, we have a good faith doubt, you have to be able to prove the good faith doubt. And if Correct. not, it's a ULP, right? It's an unfair labor practice. It's an unfair labor practice and you can end up with a bargaining order. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, so that's huge. Um, I mean, it, 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 and it shifts the way, um, because in a in a in a car, in a traditional election as it is, ex, as exists today, if you receive cards, 
that and you say, okay, we're, we don't recognize the union to your point, which most companies do, then that creates a period of time, which runs somewhere between 20 and 50 days. And on average, I mean, it's, I don't forget what the average is like 36 days or something where, where the company can then begin to communicate to its employees about, okay, we, we've got this election thing going on. Here's how we feel about unions. Here's what unions are like. Here's what the, you know, there's corruption aspects, there's bargaining, there's this, there's that. Um, like there's this whole process that's time honored and, you know, all employers, most employers use in the, in this uh, as they lead up to the election, because the goal is to try to convince people to vote either for or against the union, right? That all of that goes out the window. And so like, and if, so if you're caught blindsided, you basically went from yesterday, everything was fine to today. I've got a union that I need to bargain with is kind of the, 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 the worst case impact here. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it really it puts a tremendous burden on employers to really well, to really understand what's going on with their employees for super supervisors and managers, those that interact with employees on a day to day basis to really have their eyes and ears on what's going on in the workplace and be hyper aware of the potential signs of that a labor union might be sneaking around in the background, talking to employees, trying to get cards signed um, and is going to put to the extent you, you, you don't want to run a campaign before a union comes in, but in essence, you, you have to run a campaign before the union comes in because everything you do um, should be, you know, needs to be directed towards employees kind of understanding what to do if they're if a labor organizer if a union union organizer is talking to them and what it means when they sign a card and and it's it's employers don't like talking about labor unions to employees because they don't want to plant those seeds in employees minds but you you almost have to at this point if 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 joy silk comes back because employees need to understand if a if a union if a union organizer gives them a card to sign, what exact what exactly they're agreeing to? Yeah, and we can't articulate like all the things that that an employer would need to think about here in the time that we have today. But like, there's a ton of stuff, and what it does is it shifts your game. It's not a game, really. It shifts your responsibility to avoid a union from sort of like, okay, we need to win this campaign, which is a finite event, to where you have to like always be do at the top of your game to never get the card signed in the first place, right? You need yeah. to be better with your managers. You need to treat your employees fairly. You need to make sure that your positive employee relations uh, policies become penultimate kind of, or the ultimate in prevention, right? So you've got to be at your best at all times. Cause if you're not, your employees just whip out a pen, sign a bunch of cards. And the next day you have a union, obviously yeah. it's not that simple. And there are other things you can do to fight, but that's the, that's the potential impact of this. Yeah. Now, I play devil's advocate. I mean, or maybe it's maybe it's not devil's advocate. Maybe it's the other side of the argument, or maybe that is the devil's advocate. I don't know. Anyway, it's um, that's what employ. I mean, that's what employers should be doing anyway. Yeah. And we talk all the time about like the best union avoidance strategy is being a good employer to your workers, and so that's what employers should be doing anyway on a day to day basis. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that employers are going to be left with not a lot of options when those cards come in um and there's also not a lot of rules or policing in terms of what unions can say to employees to get them to sign the cards in the first place there's no oversight there there and um and you don't 
and you will no longer in most cases have the benefit of being able to have your say through the campaign leading up to the election. Yeah. So it is um it is you know potentially um again not that unions need the help but it is really it, it's going it, to it's really going to um tilt the table in their favor on the organizing side. So so what it does then is so if you're at a card signing and so okay here we are we've got cards the, the board saying recognize the union to start bargaining employers have a choice there which throws us back kind of the con- the ability to get a contract, right? So one choice is the employer can say, I don't believe that this is, I mean, what we are, you litigate the good faith aspects and say you lose, then you get a bargaining order. Um, you have a couple of choices. One is to begin bargaining in good faith. How you bargain is a potential strategy. And the other is, I think, to say, this is, I'm not buying this. I refuse to bargain, right? So what, what happens if you, on those two paths? Well, I mean, if you you, you hard bargain um, potentially to an impasse, if you don't want to get if you don't want to give that first contract, you just in you know you in good faith bargain hard, don't give in on the key points. You old you eventually after a significant amount of time bargain to an impasse, um, and you um, and you uh, can then kind of implement you, you kind of can implement your own terms and conditions. Um, or employees get frustrated as they're seeing in the Starbucks and start filing desert petitions. That's also that's also possible. Mm-hmm. Um, if you dig your heels in in the face of a bargaining order and don't bargain, um, you at that point could be looking at you know the NLRB you know seeking you know 10J injunctions against you and you know and you could end up with the full you know the full might of the NLRB being brought down on you in court, you know seeking you know all kinds of remedies against you. Um, uh, for your failure to follow its bargaining order. So, so that's a case where the company, if they really believe what they're saying, and as you said, digging in their heels, they're probably prepared to go to the Supreme Court to argue over the validity of the of the case and this the whole standard. Most yeah, but again, most of these, you know, most of these employers are not going to be your multi billion dollar companies. They're going to be, you know, mom and pop manufacturing shops with twenty employees, and do they have? You know, where is their financial wherewithal to take a case to the Supreme Court to get, um, you know, to get uh, Semex thrown out, right? Found, right. you know, to to, right. to to say that for the Supreme Court to say the NLRB exceeded its authority. You know, they're not going to have the that that's a multi million dollar piece of litigation at that point that most companies just don't have the financial wherewithal right. to, to to fight. But somebody's going to test that case. A- absolutely. Yeah. And, and 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 it'll be it'll be Amazon or Starbucks or it's going to be one of these big, huge, you know, multi, multi, multi billion dollar corporations that are in the middle of um, all this organizing that's been going on for the last couple of years. So turmoil in the in the interim turmoil, a lot of a lot of disgruntlement at your workplace, you know, a lot of conflict, it, not a good business environment for sure. And I, there's a lot more here, but we, we have limited time. And so, so this is really scary. This is really big. You need to pay attention to it again, contact labor lawyers, uh, LRI, where I work, we provide advice and guidance on this kind of stuff, you know, so, you know, there are, there are, there are groups with expertise out there beyond John and I, but, you know, many of, many, many of us, um, this is a time when you're going to probably need as an HR practitioner to be really, uh, 
you know, getting some outside help here because there's a lot of really uh, big decisions potentially coming your way if this all happens as we've described it. The, the, yeah, I, and, I just and, wanna, and, and let me yeah, just yeah, add though, the, the, these are issues that HR practitioners just don't have a lot of experience or expertise in. And you don't, again, this is an area where you don't want to DIY it because like you don't know what you don't know. And there, there are people out there in the world that do this for a living and, I mean, yes, we cost money and businesses, particularly small businesses, don't like spending money on legal fees or consultant fees. And I get that. But if you've never been through an organizing campaign, have never dealt with a labor union, don't know what you can do, can't do, can say, can't say, um, you can really, really, really bollocks this up if you do it wrong. And so this is really a situation where um, you really need to get some professional expertise um, uh, behind you to make sure you're doing, not just doing things legally correctly, but doing things prudently to put you in the best position with your employees. So, yeah. And there are things you can do. There are th lots of things you can do to never get in this situation in the first place. And that's where you want to expend your effort, not to, not in litigation, not in fruitless collective bargaining, et cetera. Last point I wanted to touch on, John, the standard for collective bargaining, even in the face of a bargaining order, can the board does that have the ultimate authority to impose a contract? Um, I think that's what we're going to see here. Ultimately, if 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 the the board is certainly going to try to do that, I think if uh, employers are in the face of uh, uh, signed cards and bargaining orders um, are ignoring uh, the NLRB, I I mean I think it's an issue. Ultimately, it's going to have to be litigated. But I that the NLRB is certainly that's the path they're certainly going to go down here. Okay. So it's, that's not the standard today. It could become standard if they push it and try to implement. They, they might I think be, that's right. They might be ballsy enough to go that, to go that far. Okay. With this board, I, I think all bets are off. So yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, let's talk about mandatory meetings and the impact of a ban there. Uh, I'll let you set that up and kind of talk about, it. let's do these next two pretty fast. Yeah. So um, the other aspect, the second aspect that Abruzzo is trying to to legislate through this CEMEX or CMEX decision uh, concerns captive audience meetings. That is during an organizing campaign where the employer um, gets all the employees in a room or small groups of employees um, and basically uh, gives their you know gives their spiel about why the employees should not vote for the union. Um, Abruzzo feels the mere fact of a captive audience meeting taking place, that the mere fact of the meeting is coercive because implied in the meeting itself is a threat that if they decline to listen or leave or otherwise don't participate in this meeting, that their employment is being is being implicitly threatened. And so as a result, she wants to ban all captive audience meetings as threatening and coercive under Section 8A1 of of the Act, um, and I and I think that's probably what we're going to see come out of this case is some kind of formulation that captive audience meetings um, are inherently coercive um, and threatening. Um, two open issues in my mind is um, will we see some kind of uh, Mirandizing permitted. Um, that is, um, before before an, an employer or supervisor, whoever talks to a group of employees, uh, persuader talks to a group of employees. Um, can they Mirandize them 
um, you know, you have the, you know, you, you are listening voluntarily, you have the right to leave and nothing's going to impact your employment, et cetera. Um, the other issue that I don't think has gotten a lot of attention, um, but one that kind of popped into my mind this morning as I was thinking about what we're going to talk about today is, is the ban on captive audience meetings going to be limited just to captive audience meetings in the context of union organizing, or is it going to go further and ban all captive audience meetings that have the potential to impact employees' exercise of Section 7 rights, independent of whether it's done in and around collective bargaining or a union organizing drive? So, for example, if there's an accident in the workplace and the employer has a mandatory safety meeting for all employees, safety, term and condition of employment, employees talking about safety would impact their Section 7 rights, would employees, is this standard going to allow employees, for example, to opt out of a mandatory safety meeting um, because they would feel threatened or coerced? in some manner by attending that meeting. And that's an issue that I, I haven't r seen a lot discussed or written about. And we'll have to wait to see the decision when it comes out, kind of just how far what we assume is going to be a ban on captive audience meetings is going to go. Yeah. And I, I see as we're sitting here that they also just issued final rules on election procedures today. A memo just came out. So there will be, there's more stuff coming out as well. So stay tuned next week. We'll be back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a chance to read it obviously, but that's breaking news. Uh, I got to get a, an email out on that in a minute, but uh, yeah. So again, it, you know, from a practitioner standpoint, uh, this changes the way you can communicate. You can't just say we're all hands meeting. We're going to talk about unions and what they mean. You now need to kind of induce people to come there. The standard of what you have to say to them uh, about attending the meeting and your response, if they choose not to, et cetera, may all change. We don't know, but we expect to see some changes here that will have a material impact on how you conduct communications with your employees going forward during any kind of uh, issues surrounding uh, protected concerted activity or, or union organizing. And then lastly, TriCast, another case which, uh, as I mentioned before, kind of talks about the employer-employee relationship and the way you communicate on that. You want to kind of sum that up for us real quick, John? Yeah, so the uh, under TriCast, um, which is now a, I think, 40-year-old. And I mean, uh, when we talk about how old some of these precedents are that that Semex has the ability to, or the potential to overturn. You just see how you start to understand how paradigm shifting this is going to be. I think TriCast was an 84, 85 board decision. Um, that case allowed employers to tell employees during an organizing campaign that if they voted for the union, their access to management um, on work related issues would be limited if they vote for the union. Um, and um, TriCast, uh, if the case, if CMEX goes the way we think it's going to go, um, the opposite will now be true, <laughs> and employers will not be able to say to employees um, that uh, if they vote for the union or if they sign cards, um, and the and the union you know comes in as their representative, employers will no longer be able to make any reference to the fact that. Um, employees will not be able to deal directly with the employer they're going to, have to go through their union to to file a grievance adjust a grievance um 
et cetera, in order to have their, um, in order to have uh, workplace issues discussed in the workplace. So again, a a fairly, fairly substantial change. And it, and, and it may sound like, like legalese or gobbledygook in some case, you know, like, what do you mean? I can't say that. I mean, it's very nuanced, but the, the impact of a union coming in, it, I mean, the, the, the material impact on your culture and the work dynamic is huge. Um, it's not all negative. It's not all positive, uh, but it's huge. And if you've never operated in one, as you start to articulate to your employees to not be able to say this in a, in a very direct way, is hugely impactful on your whole communication strategy. And that's why this is, at least in my mind, that's why this is so scary, I think. Um, it also opens up ULPs that didn't exist in the past and so on and so forth. So there's a lot There's a lot here and we're not doing it justice by giving you two minutes on it, but it really is another important aspect of your overall positive employee relations and labor relations policy that you need to look at because it's kind of a linchpin communications point for most campaigns right now and what not being able to say these things and having to say them with very carefully nuanced words is a challenge for supervisors i think yeah i'm yeah yeah i mean right 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 now you can say to an employee um if you sign a union card you're you're sacrificing your right to speak for yourself you are sacrificing your right to talk to management you have to go through your union rep you have to file a grievance um you are you are giving your rights to a third party. You're giving up your rights to advo- to self-advocacy, right? Those are all legal things you can say um, to, which are all, by the way, accurate. Right. <laughs> that was my point. <laughs> they're, 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 they're 100% accurate, factually and legally accurate um, under labor law as it's existed for as long as labor law has existed. It's accurate. Um this decision, again, if it comes out the way we think it's going to come out, would make all of those statements unfair labor practices. And it, it kind of leaves me mind boggled. So, okay, so we're we're well up into almost an hour. Uh, I was hoping for 45 minutes. Um, there's a lot more to say. We might have to do another show, uh, certainly after the thing comes out and we know the, the like the real impact, we'll come back and update. But in the, in the interim, uh, this is big. Uh, if, you've, if you've listened this long, uh, pay attention to the places where we where we communicate. John, I'm sure will write blog posts on law, Ohio Employer Law blog, and definitely LRI blog will have stuff up. Uh, follow our Twitters, and we'll get you the latest and greatest as it develops. Uh, I don't know, John. You got any concluding thoughts? It's a big day, it's a big orange day with a giant orange cone for all of the HR profession to stay tuned for what the NLRB is about to do. Yeah, I mean, find your favorite labor lawyer, um, whether it's me or someone else and your favorite labor consultant, whether it's Mike or someone else and, and, and uh, uh, stay tuned because uh, uh, you will be, when this decision comes out, um, uh, it's going to be something everyone's going to be talking about. And it's, 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 it is, again, we, we don't like to speak in hyperbole, but I don't think it's hyperbolic to say this is really going to be paradigm shifting for how business is done in the United States. Yep. So welcome to the Jennifer Abruzzo era, and we'll see how long, see what it looks like and how long it lasts, but it's going to be a bumpy ride for them. Yeah. The a, non, a, a non-elected, a um, I mean, she's a, a, a she's the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. She is a, a non-elected official um, in something that historically we, it's, I don't want to downplay her, you know, who she is or what she does, but it's a position to, to think that someone 
in a non-elected position through the who also doesn't write the decisions for the NLRB. She's not on the National Labor Relations Board. She's as general counsel um, uh, is going to um, have this much sway and this much impact on labor policy uh, and human uh, and, and employee relations policy in the United States is is just mind boggling. Yep. All right. I'm going to go ahead and uh, end the recording. So I hope, uh, thanks for listening. If you've listened this far in, if you need any help, reach out. Um, we'll have more to come in the short term, I'm sure. And hope everyone has a good, uh, good day. Take care, John. Thanks for doing this. Cheers.